Well, the coronation of King Charles uh, was quite the extravagant affair, wasn't it? I don't know how many of you uh, saw it on television, but uh, dignitaries came from all over the world uh, to, to be present uh, at this thing. And uh, Charles's parade was lined with thousands and thousands of spectators as, as the as the coronation uh, party marched from a Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, where the coronation actually happened. Uh, and they say that somewhere in the neighborhood of $125 million was spent uh, on this coronation, and most of it was for security because there were so many people uh, who could have uh, harmed Charles if they had a mind to. And, you know, England hadn't crowned a monarch in some 75 years, right, since King, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, was, was uh, crowned so many years ago. And so uh, this was a very, very big deal, full of pomp and circumstance and everything else that you'd expect uh, from such a coronation. Well, 2,000 years ago, uh, there was a different kind of parade, right? Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem. And he came with a very small entourage, only those who had been following him from Galilee down through uh, Perea into Jericho and then over west again uh, to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and though Jesus is our king, uh, he is our Lord and our savior, the only crown he ever wore was a crown of thorns. And the only royal robe he ever wore was a purple robe that they put on him to mock him and to scorn him. And so over the next six chapters in Mark, uh, now we see uh, Israel's rejection of her king. Uh, Jesus presents himself uh, to Israel as uh, their king, and they reject him. Now, when Roman enemies defeated their uh, enemies, or when Roman generals defeated their enemies in battles, uh, what did they do? Uh, they got this big ceremony called a triumph. Uh, they would, they would uh, dress him up, decorate their war horse, put him on a chariot. Uh, there would be trumpeteers and all kinds of people who would uh, regale this, this general as he came into the city uh, celebrating his victory. And, and behind the general there would be uh, the spoils of war and then the last thing uh, would be the prisoners that he captured in chains. Uh, that would be uh, what was part of uh, this Roman procession. And, and there was nothing humble about this. This was not meant to be a subtle thing. This was meant to glorify this conquering general as much as possible. Well, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was hardly triumphal, at least in a military sense, right? He came humble, uh, riding on a donkey, uh, and so not in a military way at all. Uh, and so he entered not with captured prisoners uh, or captured booty, uh, but with hopeful followers, people who, who were anticipating uh, the new kingdom that was coming. And what should have been Jesus' coronation ended up being his crucifixion and then his death, burial, and resurrection. And so Jesus' victory wasn't a military triumph in any way, uh, and yet it was better still, wasn't it? Because what Jesus did uh, was more than conquer an army. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan uh, for all who believe. So Mark's focus throughout this gospel has been, who is a disciple? Uh, what does a disciple look like? And we've been following Jesus since chapter 1, obviously, and we've said that the first nine chapters were spent in Galilee. Uh, lots of teaching up in Galilee, lots of miracles up in Galilee. And then we said that chapter 10 was on the way. Jesus is on the way from Galilee down toward 
Jerusalem. And, and that's where we see a real focus on uh, the teaching that Jesus did, teaching his disciples what a disciple looks like. So uh, just in the last couple chapters, we've seen that a disciple is, uh, if he wants to be a true disciple, uh, if he wants to save his life, he must lose it for the sake of the gospel. Whoever wants to be first must be last and a servant of all. But not just a servant of all, he must also be a slave of all. He doesn't live to be served, but he lives to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as we saw last week with blind Bartimaeus, uh, after Jesus healed him, Bartimaeus responds in faith and follows him down the road. And so uh, these are just some of the things that a true disciple looks like. Uh, and now in the remaining chapters, the last six chapters of Mark, all this takes place in Jerusalem. So when you think about it, Six of the 16 chapters of Mark are just the last week of Jesus' life, what we call his Passion Week. Uh, passion is from the Latin word passio, which means to suffer, which is why we call it uh, the Passion Week. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for these last six chapters, and he models in Jerusalem everything that he's been teaching his disciples about what a disciple ought to look like. And so uh, that's what he came to do, and he does that in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus could have stayed up in Galilee, right? It was relatively safe up there. He could have gone to other more remote parts where he would have been safe. But Jesus didn't come to be safe. Jesus came to die. That was the purpose of why he came. Now, I get stressed when I know that I have a dentist appointment coming up in the next week. That, that stresses me out. Sorry, Mark. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine what Jesus' life was like? Living every day of your life knowing the day that your life was going to end. Knowing where your life was going to end. Can you imagine living your life like that? Uh, that's how Jesus lived his life. Knowing exactly when, exactly where, and being in full control of all of it. Deciding of his own volition that this was what he was going to do. Now, if this were me, I'd have run from Jerusalem as far as I possibly could. But Jesus knew excuse me, knew what his mission was, and he had the courage. He had the obedience to God the Father. He had the love for us to go through with this crucifixion. So Jesus' Passion Week starts with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we'll see all the conflicts that he has with the scribes and Pharisees uh, throughout the week uh, as, we, uh, as we work our way through these last six chapters. So what we'll do is we're going to read the entire passage, and then we'll dis discuss how Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, uh, first of all, fulfilled prophecy, and then showed the kind of king he was. Uh, showed how the people misunderstood the kind of kingdom that he was going to bring and his mission, and showed how he is the judge of all things. So we'll get to all of those, uh, but first Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem, at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat." Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying that colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their coats on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who were in front and those who were following shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. 
Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. All right, so the first thing that we see here is that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was an intentional and public proclamation that he was their Messiah. Uh, It was no accident that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding a donkey, coming the way that he chose to came. Because if Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, he must do the things that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, said that the Messiah would do. And Jesus did that throughout his ministry. So, for example, we see in Isaiah chapter 35, uh, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Okay? Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So we know that during Jesus' ministry, he did all of those things, right? He healed the blind, the deaf, the mute, proclaimed liberty to the captives, uh, even raised the dead. In, in, uh, in other Gospels, we read about the raising of Lazarus, uh, Na- uh, the, raising of Lazarus uh, the widow of Nain's son. Uh, so we see him doing that as well. And so for all these very recognizable signs of their Messiah, Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees should have been the ones who were most eager to welcome him because they were the ones most familiar with the scriptures. They were the ones most eagerly anticipating their Messiah, and yet they refused to recognize him. Now, some of them were probably having a, a, you know, a sarcastic attitude toward Jesus, like, well, yeah, it's easy just to get on a donkey and ride it into Jerusalem and say, I'm the Messiah, right? That's, that's what you can do if you know what the prophecy says. But remember that Jesus fulfilled so many other prophecies that no one born of earthly origin could possibly fulfill. For example, Isaiah 7 says that Jesus would be born of a virgin, right? So there's no way that you can plan that, right, to be born of a virgin. Uh, It also says, Micah chapter 5 says he would be born in Bethlehem, right? You cannot plan the place of your own birth. Uh, Genesis 49 says that Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah. You can't decide in advance who your ancestors will be. And same with 2 Samuel 7, where it says that, that David, you will have somebody on the throne of your house forever, the Messiah. And so Jesus is born of that line, which you also can't plan. So Jesus checked all these boxes. This is no deception. Jesus is just fulfilling what the Old Testament said that their Messiah would do. Uh, So, uh, one of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is this prophecy that we know of. This is an obvious one from Zechariah chapter 9, right? Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, Jesus could have come into Jerusalem any way he wanted, right? 
Uh, but he intentionally did this to fulfill Old Testament prophecy because he was making a statement. He was saying, I am coming uh, as the Messiah is predicted to come. I am that Messiah. And now what are you going to do with me? And so this is a clear and obvious claim. You, he sets himself up and now it's up to the people. Are they going to receive him are they go, are there, or are they going to reject him? But this is a clear claim of authority by Jesus. He's, he's presenting himself as their king. Now, during the triumphal entry, it seems like the people who were traveling with him, right, those who came with him uh, from Galilee down through Perea into Jericho and then Jerusalem, uh, they were certainly excited about him. Uh, and they were, they were lining the streets, laying their coats and their palm branches down so that uh, Jesus could walk this path of honor. And so they received him well. Uh, and this was very typical of, of how you would greet a, a coming king in, in those days. At least uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, we have an example of this from 2 Kings. Uh, when Jehu entered into uh, the city as their anointed king, it says, Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. So what we see here in this uh, triumphal entry uh, is representative of what had happened in the past in the Old Testament. Jehu proclaiming himself as king, the people agreeing that he is king. This is what Jesus is doing. And so he's putting himself out there as their king. And so he fulfills this Zechariah prophecy uh, to make a public de declaration. Now, he also fulfills a less obvious prophecy uh, by coming when he did. And this is also something that no earthly man could control. And this is the prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, y'all may remember when we preached through Daniel uh, last year, we, when we came to chapter 9, these difficult verses from verse uh, uh, 24 to 27, uh, I said that the weeks are sets of seven years, right? So there's 62 sets of seven years, then seven weeks of seven years. That's a total of 483 years. And that's how long it would be from this decree that is referenced in Daniel chapter 9 uh, until Messiah is cut off. Now, uh, without going through all the possibilities, I said that the, the decree that Artaxerxes issued in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 is the decree that gets the clock running. Remember in Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, Nehemiah uh, had heard news that the city of Jerusalem was in ruins and he was sad before the king. And the king saw that he was sad and said, Nehemiah, oh, what's the problem? Why are you sad? And uh, so Nehemiah tells the king, my city's in ruins. Would you allow me to go back and rebuild it? And so Artaxerxes issues this decree uh, that he can go back and build uh, the city and the gates and the walls. And so this is the decree uh, that is referenced. And the, the date of that is March 9, or, or 444 BC. Now, if you count forward 483 years using the Jewish 360-day calendar, you will land exactly at the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when Jesus presented himself as king but was rejected 
cut off and then killed. Now, no earthly man can plan that, right? This is divine. The timing of this is divine. So uh, Jesus's entry into Jerusalem fills the timing of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, it, fill, it fulfills exactly when God said it would happen. And it also fulfills the manner of how he would come. He would come riding in on a donkey. And then later in the week, Jesus would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53, uh, which says that he would die for our sins and by his stripes, we are healed. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem fulfilled prophecy. It also shows what kind of king Jesus is. What kind of king Jesus is? The first thing we see is, is Jesus' sovereignty is all over this, right? Uh, the first thing you see is that you know, he predicts the events that are going to happen immediately. You go into the city and you're going to find a donkey and the people are going to say and then you say and then they'll let you have it, right? Uh, Jesus is all over this. We can't miss Jesus' sovereignty. So it's, it's one week before Passover when Jesus was in Jericho, right? And, and here's the route that Jesus was going to take. I don't know how well you can see that, but this is a, a mountainous walk uphill from Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem. That's where he was headed. And when he got close, uh, he stopped first in Bethany here. Uh, and what he did then was he sent a couple of disciples, we don't know which ones, ahead of him into the village of Bethpage, which is right here. And this is where this event happens, where Jesus says, you're going to find a donkey there tied to a post. You say, if anybody challenges you, say the Lord has need of it. And uh, immediately he'll send it back. And so uh, that is what happens. But this often forgotten part of the story uh, shows how sovereign Jesus is over everything that is happening. So Jesus controlled what was going to happen. He controlled the timing of these events. You know that the scribes and Pharisees had tried to kill Jesus earlier on more than one occasion. Remember, they walked him out to the cliff in Nazareth and they were going to throw him off, but he, he passed right through their hands, right? It's not going to happen any other way than Jesus's way. It's going to happen the way he decides it's going to happen. And so previously, it was not the right time and it was not the right place because Jesus's death had to be at the Passover. It had to be at the Passover and it had to be in Jerusalem. So at the Passover is symbolic, right? It's symbolic of Jesus fulfilling uh, the Passover lamb. Uh, Jesus portrayed himself as the final Passover lamb, the one who would die once and for all for our sins. Now, this, of course, comes from the Exodus, where God told them uh, that you're going to be uh, freed tonight uh, right after I send the plague of death on Egypt. And the firstborn of all Egypt is going to die tonight. But you, you sacrifice this Passover lamb and you paint the lintels of your doorway with the Passover lamb's blood and the angel of death will pass over you. And so that is what uh, the Jews did. But... Then God instituted the whole entire sacrificial system, right? Where it is necessary for the blood of a lamb uh, to pay for uh, the people's sins. And so every sin required a sacrifice. And, G and God said that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus is, is coming here at the Passover, which had been in place you know, for 1,500 years, this sacrificial system. And now he's going to change all of that. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And 1 Peter 19, or 119 calls Jesus the Lamb without blemish. Hebrews 9 says that the, the blood of Jesus applied once to our lives cleanses us from all sin. 
And so Jesus had to die at Passover symbolically to fulfill uh, the final Passover sacrifice. He died in our place, and his blood covers the sins of all who believe. So that's why it had to happen at Passover. It also had to happen in Jerusalem, uh, because that's where many of Israel's prophets had died. Not all of them. Uh, Daniel didn't die in Jerusalem, for example. Neither did Moses, neither did Jeremiah. Uh, but many of them did. But I think the point of this is that uh, Jerusalem is the place where the Jews are. Uh, and he has to go to the place where the Jews are to be killed by the very people he came to save. And I find that to be an incredibly humble thing that our Lord did. So the time, the place, the manner of his execution, all of this is under Jesus' control. Uh, nobody could speed up the events. No one could slow down the events. Remember when, when uh, they said, watch out for Herod. Uh, you know, he's after you. And Jesus said, you tell that old fox it's going to happen at my time and at my place. Well, Jesus was in control of all of this. And this was the time. It was going to happen this week. And so Jesus' sovereignty is clear. Also, uh, his humility. You know, this Roman conquering hero who came in uh, rode in uh, on this uh, decorated war horse with as, as much ceremony and trumpeting and noise and, and glory as they could possibly receive. Uh, but Jesus comes not on a war animal like a horse, but a peace animal, a donkey, a totally different uh, presentation that he's making. And Jesus had the entire power of God at his disposal, right? He certainly could have you know, had uh, 12 legions of angels, as he said, uh, lining the streets, protecting him so that this never happened, what they had planned against him. And yet, uh, because he was God in the flesh and because he loved God the Father and because he loved us, uh, he went through with it. And only a humble and loving Savior uh, would live in complete obedience to his Father and love for us to suffer what he suffered that week when he had the power to stop it. And so he came to Jerusalem uh, ready to die uh, for the sin of the world, but completely in control of the means and the timing of how it would happen. Uh, so that entry showed the kind of king he is. It also shows that uh, they misunderstood, the crowd misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. You know, it was just a short walk from Bethpage uh, over the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then into uh, the city walls of Jerusalem and then to the temple. This is what it would look like uh, on a little sketch. So this is Bethany here over to Bethpage, uh, up and over the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and right into uh, the temple, uh, into the city of Jerusalem, and then into uh, the temple. And so that's what it looks like. And along the way, this is you know, maybe a mile, a mile and a half walk. They're, they're, they're laying their coats. They're laying their branches down, welcoming this king, as if he had already conquered uh, its, his, uh, their enemies. And so they sang, uh, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, uh, the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, uh, you may know that these verses are from Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Uh, and Jews, on their way to Passover, what they would do is they would sing Psalms 113 to 118. These were called the Hallel, or the praise psalms. And so they would sing them every Passover on their way up to Jerusalem. And here they are. They're singing this, Psalm 118, uh, to Jesus as though he is their conquering king. Now, the word Hosanna means save now, save now. Uh, but it had come to be used like a praise word, like we might shout hallelujah or amen, something like that. So they're shouting this uh, at Jesus. And they're shouting Hosanna to him and welcoming him as though he is the one with the power to save them. 
And blessed is he uh, is a prayer uh, that God would empower him to lead them to victory. And then uh, the last thing, the one who comes in the name of the Lord is, is their acknowledgement that he represents God, although they never actually called him Messiah. And so when we consider all that these bystanders did on that morning, they got a lot of it right, didn't they? They got a lot of it right. They welcomed him uh, as their king, which is a, 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 the, the right response. They welcomed him enthusiastically. They recognized that he was coming as a king to rule a kingdom, and they praised him, uh, and they looked to him to fulfill their hopes and their dreams uh, that they had harbored for centuries. But what they misunderstood was the nature of his kingdom. They misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. Jesus didn't come to establish a physical kingdom on earth, but to establish a spiritual kingdom in their hearts. And, you know, we can understand their enthusiasm, right? Because the Jews had not enjoyed much independence from foreign enemies for the last 1,000 years or so, right? Uh, back 1,000 years earlier, uh, the kingdom split uh, right after Solomon died, right? And you had the 10 northern tribes and you had the two southern tribes, and they were constantly at war with each other. And then in 722 BC, Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom, wiped them out. Uh, 586 BC, the Babylonians come and wiped the southern kingdom out. And, and, and Jews of Judah had lived under the thumb of Babylon, uh, and then Persia, and then Greece, and now Rome for the past 600 years or so. And what they wanted was a deliverer, somebody to deliver them to establish a military, political, earthly, independent, sovereign kingdom like they had back in the days of David. They longed to be free from Roman oppression, and they saw Jesus as their deliverer. And they were so close to the mark in a way, weren't they? He was their deliverer, but he was not their deliverer from Rome. Jesus came not to free Israel from Rome, but to free all sinners from the penalty we owe because of our sin. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, you and I, sometimes we think that, that we know what God is up to, right? We think that we have God's plan figured out. We, we, we expect certain things. Uh, and that's what these Israelites were. They're like, well, here comes God doing what he said he was going to do, and he's going to bring in this kingdom, uh, and, and we're going to live in sovereignty, uh, in, in peace against all other nations, conquering them. We will not be under Roman oppression anymore. And it turns out they were wrong. They misunderstood what God had in mind. And so it, just a lesson for us is that you know, sometimes we may think we have God figured out. We may think that, that uh, God ought to do things a certain way. But we have to remember that God is absolutely sovereign, and God has a way of doing things that may not be our way of doing things. Uh, and we can rest assured because he is God and because of what Jesus is going to do as we walk through this Passion Week, uh, that God's way is best, even though we may not understand it. And that is what uh, these Jews uh, did not learn at the time. They remained under Roman oppression. Now, for us as Americans, you know, 21st century Americans, we don't know what it's like to live under oppression of a foreign nation, right? We've never experienced something like that. But what we have experienced, at least uh, you know, for anybody who, who understands their struggle with sin, is that we have, we, we have lived under bondage to sin. We have struggled in this battle with sin. And uh, especially like, if, like me, if you've experienced God's saving grace later in life, uh, you know what a trail you've left behind you, right? Uh, and so when we think about that, uh, we, we have to remember that, that bondage to sin uh, is far worse than bondage to any foreign ruler. 
Because bondage to sin means separation from God. Bondage to sin means separation from God, and we don't want to be separated from God. So Jesus did not come to give us temporary relief from pain and suffering or from oppression in the Jews' case, and uh, from Roman oppression. Uh, he came to solve our problem of being separated from God by our sin, and that's what he did with his death on the cross. He came to give us eternal peace with him, and in the coming days, uh, Jesus would accomplish everything necessary for us to have peace with God, to be reconciled to him. And so his entry into Jerusalem shows that they misunderstood the kind of kingdom that he brought. It wasn't a kingdom uh, of, of uh, physical sovereignty on earth. It was a spiritual kingdom where we get to enjoy peace with God forever and ever. And the last thing Jesus' entry into Jerusalem shows is that uh, Jesus is judge over all. You know, Jesus walked those rugged 21 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, mostly uphill, stopping in Bethany, as we saw, and then sending the, the, the couple apostles on to Bethpage to have that interaction where they secure the donkey. So we can understand, it makes sense, that it probably was quite late by the time they got to uh, Jerusalem that night. And he probably would have entered through uh, what, is, what is called the Eastern Gate. This is actually a rebuild of the Eastern Gate, not the original Eastern Gate that Jesus might have walked through. Uh, but this is the closest gate to that route that I showed you earlier, crossing the Kidron Valley and into this gate that has been rebuilt very close to where the original Eastern Gate was. Uh, and if you notice, uh, that gate has been bricked up. Do you see that? that? That gate, you cannot pass through that gate. Uh, I just find this funny because uh, in the 15th or the 16th century, 15, uh, 1541, uh, Sol uh, King Solomon, uh, he bricked this thing up because uh, the, what, what the prophecies told him was that the Jewish Messiah was going to enter through uh, the Eastern Gate. And so he bricked it up to stop the Messiah from entering into Jerusalem, right? I mean, is that a joke that, that you think you're going to stop the Messiah from entering into Jerusalem because you bricked up a gate? Uh, I don't think so. So uh, good luck, King Solomon. Uh, so uh, he's, nothing is going to stop our Lord when he comes again, uh, certainly not a few bricks. So Jesus comes to the gate, right? But not only does he come to the gate, as the text says, he went all the way to the temple and inspected. He looked around, right? So uh, you have the, he didn't go into the actual temple probably, but he was looking at the temple courts, the courts of the Gentiles, the courts of the Jews, where you know, certain groups of people were allowed to, to be, and, and there were regulations for how they were supposed to worship the Lord there. And what does he find? Well, we're going to see next week that he found that, that uh, these temple courts were being used as a den of robbers, as Jeremiah predicted in verses 7 through 11. And so uh, his coming to inspect uh, shows that he has authority. He's got the authority to look over this, and he's got the authority to say, this is not how this temple is supposed to be used. He's got the authority to do that. So he's got the authority to come. He's got the authority to inspect and tell people how things ought to be. And then after surveying the temple grounds, he walks around, looks around a little bit, and then he leaves and heads back to Bethany. Now, Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, so he probably stayed there as he did whenever he was in and around Jerusalem. And what we see here next is that the triumphal entry ends totally anticlimactically, right? Jesus comes in, looks around, and heads back out to Bethany again. Every time I read it, I'm like, well, that was a downer. Like, is anything going to happen here? Well, it's different in Luke and Matthew. If you read Luke and Matthew, they don't have the overnight stay in, in Bethany. 
Uh, immediately, Jesus comes into contact and to conflict with the scribes and Pharisees when he enters. But Mark records this overnight stay in Bethany. So probably Jesus shows up at the Jerusalem gate and into the temple courts on Sunday night, goes out to Bethany to spend Sunday night, and then Monday morning, uh, which we'll start looking at next week, he comes back, and this is when the conflict with the scribes and Pharisees happens. So uh, we'll look at that next week as Jesus challenges the authority uh, of the uh, scribes and Pharisees and overturns the table of the money changers. Uh, but for now, uh, what do we do? What do we do with this triumphal entry? Well, the first thing I think we ought to do is to welcome the king. First thing we ought to do is to welcome our king. Jesus presents himself to us as king, as Lord, as savior. Uh, the only question is whether we accept him or whether we reject him. And our choice doesn't change one bit who he actually is, right? Like King Charles, you know, love him or hate him, he is the king of England. And, and you know, whether you like him or don't like him doesn't change the fact that he's the king of England, right? And that is exactly what Jesus is. He presents himself. He is king. He is savior. He is Lord. And even if we don't welcome him, that is still true. And if you don't welcome him, you're going to stand in judgment, uh, in, in his judgment one day. But those who do welcome him and trust him for salvation have moved from death to life, as John 5.24 says. Uh, he is our eternal, our eternal king, and so welcome our king. And the next thing is to imitate your king, to imitate your king. Let's assume you have welcomed him as, as king and lord and savior. Have you given over your life to him for inspection like the way he came into the temple and inspected that. He had the authority to inspect that and to say what's right and what's wrong. Have you given him that authority over your life? Uh, Jesus wants everything in our lives to match uh, what his life looks like, to match God's character and his purposes and plans. And so he wants us to live a holy life. He wants us to imitate him. He asks us to repent of our sin and to choose to follow him not half-heartedly, but in full agreement that he is our king, our savior, and our Lord, and we want our lives to resemble his as closely as possible. So how do we do that? Well, the way we do that is to serve your king. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the best way to imitate Jesus is by following that, by, by changing the way we think. We're always so self-centered, thinking about what's in it for us, uh, how we can improve our stock in life or our appearance in other people's eyes. Well, Jesus didn't think like that. Uh, we should look different from the world, and that's what Jesus is encouraging throughout his ministry. We should be living a life of service to others. And serving others is serving him. Remember in Matthew 25, when Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats, uh, he says to the sheep and to the goats, you know, whenever you saw me thirsty and gave me something to drink, whenever you saw me hungry and gave me something to eat, whenever you saw me uh, naked and, and gave me clothing and a place to, say, to stay, whenever you did this for the least of these, you did it for me. You did it for me. So we can't serve Jesus directly, right? He's not on earth where we can do something directly for him, but, but serving him is serving his people, making his name known, advancing his kingdom. That's what we can do for him. And so that's what it means to serve our king. So in our hearts and in our minds, we uh, resolve to, to lay our coats, lay our palm branches before him. Uh, ye shout, Hosanna, uh, save now uh, to the Lord Jesus uh, and give him honor and glory and surrender our lives to him. 
We welcome him. We imitate him. We serve him. And that is the proper response to Jesus' triumphal entry. Let's pray. Lord God, I can't even begin uh, to imagine what was going on uh, in Jesus' mind and heart uh, that week as he knew exactly what was coming, and yet he loved so deeply both you and us that he obeyed you and went to the cross for our sins, Lord. Lord, that should cause uh, just a deep wound in our hearts and, and, and such gratitude that, that it should be immeasur- immeasurable to us uh, when we think about uh, what the Lord did for us. Lord, I pray that, that the message uh, of the triumphal entry would touch us deeply, that he could have gone another way, Lord, and yet he came uh, voluntarily uh, to suffer for us, Lord. I pray that we would love him and honor him more, Lord, as a result of these things, and Lord, that we would proclaim his name. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.